from the printer last night, and then I printed off this night's devotional first, and so I saw tonight's devotional, and not today's sermon, but it's right underneath, so we're good. You're good, all right. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Really, what I've been what I've been trying to highlight is just a number of different words and ideas that we commonly associate with Christmas, uh, and just looking at various passages throughout Scripture that kind of highlight aspects um, and kind of our foundational text in, in teaching us that, those ideas. So we looked at the idea of hope and um, the importance of hope in Hebrews chapter 11. We looked last week at the importance of love in John chapter 15. And then this week we're going to be looking at Psalm 16 and the concept of joy that is present there. As you, as you begin to think about joy and as you turn to Psalm 16, let me just kind of recount to you a story that happened this week. This week, um, my family was responsible for cleaning the church, so I brought my daughters to help clean uh, some of the things. Uh, they can't do some things, but they like to dump trash, and they like to spend a lot of time spraying the front entry window and wiping and spraying and wiping. And they can do that for about as long as you let them. Um, I told them it was time to go, and they're like, we still want a wipe, and I'm like, we're going. But as we're leaving, an Amazon van is driving by the church. I hadn't noticed this, but Amazon vans, apparently since like February or so of this year, have started putting something on their side that says, warning or, or caution, something like that. Contents may cause happiness. <laughs> wow, that's that's a big statement. That's a big claim to be making uh, that, you know, the contents of an Amazon may, may cause happiness, right? And yet, why do they make that statement? They make that statement because a lot of people in our culture seek to find happiness, seek to find contentment, seek, seek to find joy, their hope, in something that doesn't actually provide contentment, doesn't actually provide happiness. If it did, there wouldn't be so many Amazon trucks driving all around constantly. Like, I see one down our street every single day. I, I'm pretty sure sometimes it goes by like a couple times in a day. Maybe not, but it just, it just feels that way. What does provide real hope? What provides real joy? And I think as we look through Scripture, scripture we're going to see that you know, it doesn't come from our circumstances. It doesn't come from the things that we own. It doesn't come from who we are. It comes from who we know. And I think that as we read through Psalm 16, you're going to see that. That despite David's circumstances, and, and the text doesn't really tell us exactly what all is happening in David's life, but it's apparent that he's, he's fearful. Perhaps he's fearful for his life. It seems that that might be something that we could at least uh, begin to hypothesize quite easily reading through Psalm 16. But as he's facing possibly death, or at least something that's really, really bad, and he thinks that he needs God's desperate work in his life to deliver him from that predicament, he's able to find joy. He's able to find peace. He's able to find contentment in knowing who his God is. It's interesting, right? David turns to the character of God instead of all the other things that David could have turned to. Think back. I mean, David is the king. He has power. He has prestige. He has wealth. He has concubines. He has great, 
great influence over not only his own kingdom, but also kingdoms around him. And he doesn't find his contentment. He doesn't find his joy or his happiness in that. Rather, he looks to his ultimate hope that God is faithful to him and that God will be faithful to him even in and through his death. Hopefully you found Psalm 16. If you have, please stand with me and we will read through Psalm 16 together. Psalm 16. A victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. See, the theme of this text, I believe, is the believers place their hope in God and find joy in trials. Believers place their hope in God and find joy in trials. And so as he begins, he doesn't give us the historical data, the historical details surrounding it. He just begins by going to the Lord and praying, in prayer. And I think that's a good model for us, to think about hardships, if we think about trials in our lives, where do we go? David doesn't turn to all the things that he had at his disposal to try and deal with the situation. Rather, David directs his attention, his affection, his desire to the Lord. And so he instructs you and I that believers are to turn to the Lord in humble anticipation of his deliverance. As David turns to the Lord, notice what he does. He identifies the Lord as his refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. He doesn't look to all the other things that he could look at. He looks to the Lord, and he, he identifies what his hope is. His hope is in God. He calls out, to God to rescue him. And he realizes that how does he access this refuge? How does he get saved from the predicament he's in? He's going to find this hope. He's going to find this salvation simply by crying out 
As we look in the New Testament, you see similar ideas, right? Notice how even Jesus, as he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he tell them? He tells them that as you pray, that they're supposed to pray like this, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Where does he tell them to direct their concerns? He tells them, Ask me not to lead you into temptation, and ask me to deliver you from the evil one. See, God wants us to look to him for our hope, for our protection, for our deliverance. And David realizes that as he's going through this trial, and he teaches us from the grave that as we go through similar hard times, Perhaps it's a health difficulty. Perhaps it's just the difficulties of living in a home with other sinners like yourself. And we sin against each other. And we want to be rescued from our sinful plight with other sinners. Where do we go for help? And the idea is that God is the one who delivers. God is the one who gives good James tells us that, right? For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow or turn. And so he identifies the character of God, that God is a good God, a God who cares for him, who has made a covenant with him, right? He's entered into a covenant with David. The covenant not only to redeem him, but also the covenant that one day he's going to establish his kingdom for all eternity. The Messiah will come. And so he, he looks at the character of God. He looks at the promises of God. And what does he say? God, based upon your character, based upon the fact that you are who you say you are, you preserve me. You are my hope. You are my help. But he goes on and he continues to describe the prayer. But the prayer doesn't end here. The prayer goes all the way really through verse 4. And then he begins to praise God in response to his confidence that God is actually going to respond to his prayer. And so he goes on and he says, believers explain that God is their only real and present hope. Notice how he does this in verse 2. Oh my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my good, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Notice he makes a short but very bold statement as he begins, right? You are my Lord. What's he doing? He's identifying himself with God, with God's people. He's identifying himself as, as one who belongs to the Lord, who is under God's what? Protection. That's why I highlight it. He's just told them, hey, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Why? Because you are my Lord. I've submitted myself to you. I'm under your authority. You are the only thing that I have to look for hope in. And so he's instructing his soul, even as he prays this prayer. What's he doing? So easy for us to forget. We're a real hope. So easy for us to find hope in other things, to turn to other things, a change in our circumstances, 
a change in the people around us, a change in our health, a change in the health of those around us, and thinking that those things are our salvation. But David boldly proclaims that God is his salvation, and that God will care for him as he has in the past because of the covenant relationship that he's entered into with God. Which should bring up questions in our hearts, right? Are you in a covenant relationship with God? Is God truly your Lord? Have you professed faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Is that your one and only hope? Or do you have other hopes set up in addition to that. God is an exclusive God. And David is teaching us about the importance and the centrality of God in our worship. He goes on, and he continues by describing this idea of his goodness. My goodness is nothing apart from you. It'd be easy for us to try to somehow minimalize what this is saying, right? But I think Alan Ross, one of the commentators on the book of Psalms, probably states it best as he says, by stating that his good is not beyond God, he means that it is God alone who provides for his well-being. All of it. And as a result, there is no limit to that goodness. There is nothing God cannot provide and there's nothing anyone else can provide that God has not provided. It's a strong statement about the goodness of God. Despite his circumstances, his circumstances are poor. He's crying out, he's asking God to deliver him from his current circumstances. And in the midst of that, he looks at God and he says, God, despite the poor circumstances, you are a good God. All my goodness and there is no goodness apart from you. My kids changing, my spouse changing, my job changing, may all be nice things. But if they don't change in accordance to, and as a result of God's working in the situation, if they change because of my causing somebody to change or a circumstance to change, what's the idea? That any goodness that thought maybe could come from that will not end up being good. He has strong confidence that God is a good God despite the hard circumstances that he's facing. And so he continues to pray. But then as he continues, he's going to highlight the fact that God has provided everything that he needs. God is a good God. And the idea is very similar even to the idea of Joseph. Right? Joseph's circumstances are poor. Very poor. Right? You've probably had, if you have siblings, you've probably had times where you've had bad fights with siblings. You've probably never had a bad fight that measured up to the bad fight that Joseph had with his brothers. Right? Joseph's brothers literally hated him. 
They wanted him to die. So much so that they were willing to throw him in a pit and just consider leaving him there. And then they're like, you know, I mean, it'd be a little bit more merciful to slow, sell him into slavery. So they do that. He's sold into slavery. He's thrown into prison because he's a good man. And then as he is reunited with his brothers, what does he say? Genesis 15, verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And, and that's, the, that's the idea that David is seeking to communicate. All my goodness is nothing apart from you. You bring what you bring for good. And there's no good that can be brought in apart from you. He has the same mindset as Joseph has adopted here. The final idea in his prayer in verses 3 and 4 is that the believers also examine their priorities and dedicate themselves to the Lord. Believers examine their priorities and then they dedicate themselves to the Lord. And notice how he does this in verses 3 and 4. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. And so as he, he does this, really dedication is something that's more meaningful when it's been thought through, right? You know, think about why did you decide to work where you work? Hopefully you decided to work there because in some way you find ways to care for society, right? You're caring for your family. It's not simply like this is the only job that they hire me for, okay? Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully you can see how God is using that to help other people, to cause the flourishing of society, right? You serve a good purpose within society. And what does he do? He, he, he evaluates the situation. And he looks at the two different classes of people. He looks at those who are saints, those who believe in God, who live for him, and he says, those people are the excellent ones, and I delight in them. I delight in following that path, because it's a good path. It's a path of blessing. And then he looks at the other group of people in verse 4, and he says, these people have multiplied sorrows. And he says, I'm not going to do what they do. I'm not going to do their drink offerings, and I'm not going to take up the names on their names on my lips. The idea is, I'm not going to say the name of Baal. I'm going to be faithful to the name of the Lord. And so as he walks through this, he, he chooses to examine life. And as he examines life and he considers what's all going around him, he chooses to follow the path of those who are dedicated to the Lord, even if the circumstances around him are hard. Why? Because he's confident that my goodness is nothing apart of me. Because he's in a relationship with God. And while the circumstances of his life are poor, they're hard, he's asking God to deliver him. He commits that even if life gets worse, 
I can look out and I can see the saints and the excellent ones. And I'm going to delight in them. Because this other group, their sorrows are made light. As he, as he concludes his prayer section of the psalm, he moves into a praise section. Where he's going to begin to praise God for what God has done. And he's really just praising God for his provision. And there's just really two big ideas to this. It's fairly simple. He first begins and he says, he's going to pray, believers praise God for his gifts. Verse 5. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. And so as he develops this whole idea, he begins by highlighting the fact that the Lord has given him a good heritage. You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. And really probably the idea that he's idea that he's picking up on, the portion of my inheritance, is probably the idea of um, the allotments that were assigned. If you think back to, um, back to when Israel was entering into the land, uh, there's, there's sections of scripture that just spend time describing the various allotments. Uh, this family and his son had this section of the land, and this family and his son had this section of the land. And, and Probably, if you were living back in those days, just like if you you know walked through any section of Iowa, there'd be some parts that if you were living in an agrarian culture where you're dependent upon the land to sustain you, they didn't have Bitcoin, they didn't have you know IT to work on. So if you want to make money, you kind of have to have land. You could look at some pieces of land and go, you know, that's kind of a stinky piece of land. Like, not going to get too many sheep on that piece of land. And if you do get some, like. Where's the water going to come from? Like, you know? and, and so the idea is he's picking up on that imagery. Okay? But notice he's not describing land. Right? His concern isn't the land. What is his portion? What is the gift that he's received? The gift that he's received, the good thing that he's gotten from the Lord is, Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. It's similar to the idea that you see in Numbers chapter 18, verses 23-24, where the Lord says, hey, everybody else gets a, a, a portion of land, except for the Levites, because the Levites what? The Levites' portion is the Lord. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, the, hereafter the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. That among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. And so he's highlighting this idea, that the Lord is his inheritance, that God is his source of blessing, and he delights in that. 
the idea of the cup is, is probably highlighting the idea that this is a blessed thing. And the God is the one who himself maintains this gift. It's not dependent upon David that his inheritance is maintained. It's not dependent upon people around him. God is the one who maintains his inheritance. And so he looks and he says, God, I'm going to praise you because even though my circumstances are bad, you are my gift. You are my treasure. You are my inheritance. But he goes on. Oh, sorry, verse 6 continues this idea. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Highlights once again the idea that he's using this imagery of an allotted piece of land, which is like, hey, the lines have been really good. Like, we got nice pasture land over here. We got some farmland over here. We got a stream that goes right through it so the sheep can have water and the, you can water the plants that you need for your family. And, like, this is a good line of boundaries. But he's not really talking about land. He's talking about God. Yes, I have a good inheritance. And then the, the next part of this all is the believers praise God for his counsel. Oh, sorry, verse 24. Never mind. All right. Believers praise God for his counsel. Right? So verse 20, uh, verse 7 highlights this idea. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. And so as he begins, he rejoices in God's care. He rejoices in God's care. And God's care specifically is seen in his counsel. God comes and gives him instruction. God comes and teaches him. You know, sometimes we think of, of counsel as limiting, right? But if I'm if I'm allowing my daughters to help me in the kitchen and we're making fried rice, we did this ten years ago. And they want to help me stir the fried rice. Stirring fried rice on the stove. Would it be wise for me to just tell them, "Have at it, enjoy, whatever happens, happens"? No, that'd be very foolish, right? Probably a better way for me to go about this is to give them very detailed instructions about what's hot here. Like the handle of the wok is not hot; you may touch that. The spoon is not hot; you may touch that. The grate. Don't touch that. The pan that the food is actually in, don't touch that. And for some of them, I even held them. And I, like, turned them. So, like, all they can do is touch the spoon and stir the fried rice. Was I being a Grinch? No. I was lovingly providing counsel. And he looks at God, and he says the same thing. God is a good God who gives good counsel. Why? Because he cares about his people. That's why he gives us the instruction he gives us. So that our life can be blessed. Notice how he's even previously described the excellent ones, the saints. And the other people who don't love God, who don't follow his counsel, what happens to them? Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. And so this idea in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel, it's this idea that God cares for his people. 
but he comes beside them and lovingly gives them instruction so that they can be flourishing in their relationship with him. But then the second idea in verse 7, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. And this one takes a little bit more work to kind of begin to understand, right? Because typically, when we think about my heart and your heart, we say what? Your heart is desperately wicked. <laughs> Who can know it, right? So, so why does he say, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons? Like, in the night seasons, that's when my mind begins to wander all sorts of different places, right? And I begin to wonder, is, is God really good? Like, this night is dragging on, and this is bugging me. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's something that's going on in my family. Maybe it's another circumstance with the church-related things, and he's thinking through that. And you're up in the middle of the night, and you're thinking through this, and it's like, it's only 1 a.m. still. And, and, and the natural inclination at 1 a.m. when you're still up at night thinking is not to think, you know, whatever my heart's telling me right now is a good thing. Why does he say that his heart instructs him? And then I, know, I think it's because of the pattern that we see throughout the psalm. As you look at the Psalms, what do we see? We see Psalm 63, verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. He's thinking about God. He's instructing himself as he's struggling to sleep. Psalm 42, verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the, Lord, to the God of my life. And so what is he doing at night? The psalmist is pictured as somebody who is living in praise. He's instructing himself, even in those times where he's struggling to sleep, whether it be because of pain, whether it be because he's afraid he's going to die, whether it be because of something going on in his kingdom, he's instructing himself. And so what's the truth? As he instructs himself with truth, what's his heart filled with? Truth. And then he's saying, look, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Ultimately, it's not his heart that's instructing him. It's the word of God that's instructing him. He's allowing it to actually feed his soul and transform how he thinks about and how he responds to the situations in his life. And so he's, he's praising God. He's praising God for his gift, but then also praising God for his counsel. And then all this then culminates in verses 8 through 11, where he just bursts out in rejoicing in the protection that God has given. So believers rejoice in his protection. Believers first rejoice in God's present protection. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And probably there's some imagery going on here. And if we thought about it, maybe we'd get there. But we struggle sometimes to think through imagery as well as we should. So let's kind of walk through this, right? If you're going into battle, where do you hold your shield? Left arm, typically, if you're, if you're right hand. Because your sword's going to be in your right hand, right? So if I'm attacking you, and I have a shield in my left hand, and I have a sword in my right hand, and you're you know, fighting in a similar way because you're also right-handed, where am I going to try to stab you? On the left side? Probably not. That'd be pretty stupid of me. I'm going to like probably get my sword stuck in your shield, and then you'll have the end of me. That'll be the end of that fight. So I'm going to try and stab you on your right side. Notice what he says, right? He 
says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. The idea is that God is present. He's there to protect. And so he's highlighting the fact that, hey, as I look at this, yeah, the predicament is bad. God, preserve me, oh God, for you all, for in you I put my trust. But at the same time, you can look back and you can say, in the present, in the recent present, I've seen God's hand. And so he's highlighting, he's rejoicing in God's presence with us. So verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in. God's present protection results in what? And rejoicing in God. Rejoicing in the hope that he has. Because God has been a good God. God has fulfilled his promises. He's been faithful in the past. And so even in this trial, he doesn't know how God's going to work it out. And he doesn't even tell us what the details of it are. Because it's not about the details. It's about the character of God. That even in the midst of hard details, he can do what? He can focus upon the character of God and he can find joy in the character and person and word of God. But then the text goes on in verses 10 and 11 and highlights the second point. The believers rejoice in God's care in and following death. Believers rejoice in God's care in and following their death. Verses 10 and 11. For you will not leave my soul in shield. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. See, the idea is that God does not forget his promises. It's, it's the word that he uses. For you will not leave my soul. The idea of leaving is the same word that the psalmist uses in Psalm 22, verse 1. You have, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Why from the words of my lips? This idea of forsaking and this idea of leaving my soul are the same idea. And the idea is that God doesn't do that. God doesn't abandon us. God doesn't forget about us. Even if the predicament ends up in his death. And I think that whatever is going on, I think especially as you enter into verses 10 and 11, it seems like the idea is that whatever he's currently facing has him thinking very seriously about his death. This isn't the man who's in the youth of his life where you know he's 25 and he's as strong as he's ever going to be and he's as healthy as he's ever going to be and he has the best beard and you know he's just super healthy. This is somebody who's looking death in the face. And as he does that, he highlights the fact that God will not forget him, that God will not abandon him. Yet he also knows that we're all going to die, right? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? No, he can't. You will die. And so what is your what is your hope in in life and in death. And as the song says, right? Christ alone. Christ alone. And so he's pointing them to the fact that 
God is his hope, even in the midst of that. Notice how he continues to develop this idea. He highlights the fact that God is not going to allow him to see corruption, right? Nor will he allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then in verse 10, or verse 11, he goes on and he says that God's goodness and mercy are going to continue to lead and guide him even into death. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. And so he anticipates God's continued guidance. He anticipates the fullness of joy in the presence of God. He anticipates the eternal pleasures of being in God's presence as he looks at this. Yet here we are 3,000 years after this was written by David. And if you could find the body of David, what would you find? Corruption. If you were to find the grave of David and you were to dig it up, be a mass of bones, probably a little bit of flesh left, and it wouldn't be too pretty. It really wouldn't. You wouldn't want to think about it too much. You probably wouldn't want to touch it. I know I wouldn't. He died. What's what's he getting? Why does he say that he's not going to face corruption yet? If we were to find his grave and dig it up, we would find a rotten David. Because he knows that something more is coming. And I think that's why Peter and Paul, both of the book of Acts, they pick up on this specific passage as they point to Christ. Notice how Peter uses this passage. He says, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus was raised from the grave. And the idea is that what? Because Jesus was raised from the dead, what's going to happen? One day... 3,000-year-old body of David is also going to be raised. Right? And that's what Paul highlights. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The idea is that he's just the first of a long line of many who will be restored to a physical body. And when they do, what's going to happen? You will show, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. And so, for us, the fact that we can look and we can see the evidence that Christ has been raised, it reminds us that the truth that David tells you truth that David proclaimed back 3,000 years ago is the same truth, is the same hope. It provides you and I comfort. It provides us real joy. Not dependent upon our power, our prestige, our wealth, or any other circumstance that you and I can muster, or the number of times that Amazon Prime makes a delivery at your front door. Though those may be good things. Rather, based upon finished work of Jesus. 
And so ultimately, that is our source of joy. Real joy, even in the face of death, it seems, in David. And, and that can be your joy and my joy. If you and I have placed our faith in the finished work of Christ. God does not abandon his faithfulness. He will be faithful to the end. And so I think as we think about what does this all mean for you and I, I think you and I should be people who pray for God's protection and care. We should pray for God's protection and care. We see that being modeled by David. He's facing death, it would appear. What does he do? He asks God to deliver him. He asks God to protect him and to care for him. We should be people who are quick to, to praise God for his care. You see that also modeled by David. He rejoices in the fact that God gives good gifts, that God gives good counsel. But then he also rejoices in his care, his past, present, and future joy. And as a result, he has real joy. David could be very much like the passage we read earlier in Matthew chapter 6, right? where it's so easy for us to worry. David has reason to worry. Unknown circumstances, it seems death is at the door. He's not worried. He finds joy in knowing that God is faithful and that God will resurrect him and that he will be with God and that he will enjoy his fellowship with him. And that's the same joy that you and I And so, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who has made promises. You've entered into a relationship with us. Not through our own work, but through your son's death, burial, and resurrection. And that through our faith in you, we, we can know for certain that we will be raised one day, and that we will spend eternity with you, where there is fullness of joy, where there are pleasures forevermore. We pray that you would help us to keep that hope before us, and that we would choose to live in the joy that you've provided, instead of living in fear and in worry and in frustration with what you bring before our lives. Our closing song is Joy to the World.